Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Hello. Hi there. Welcome. Welcome to the show. What's welcome. up? Welcome to our wholesome family show where we talk about severed heads, but we don't say the F word. Yeah, no swear words involved. No swear words, but a lot of rape and murder. Mm. Is that Just okay the way, with you? Just the way... Family God intended friendly. it. Yeah. Lots of murder and rape, but no swears or sex before marriage. Bill Cosby style. <laughs> wow, you went there. Anyway, oh, yeah. <laughs> welcome yeah. to Best of Cold, the <clears throat> true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. We still Shia. haven't changed that tagline. Nope. Because neither of us are drinking wine right now. I'm Laura. I'm one of your co-hosts and sometimes dogs speak to me and tell me the secrets of the world. And my name is Tama J. The J stands for Jalapeno Poppers Are My God. Ooh, you went for the the soft mm-hmm. J. The soft J. I mm, wasn't expecting that. You caught me off so guard. you pronounce my name Tama H. Hama. Hama Hey. No, Tama H. Hama Hey Hill. <laughs> 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 Just all of all of the the T, the J, and the G are all. Just soft. silent, soft, yeah. Flaccid. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to start calling it now when you talk about how you pronounce letters instead of it's like, it's yeah. not a soft J, it's a flaccid J. <laughs> <laughs> and like when it's written, it'll just be like really flappy letters. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot to drink, okay? Leave him alone. Yeah, Jesus Christ. How's your week been, Tama? It's been good. Um, You, you know, just same old shit, dude. We've been um we've been monitoring our episodes and our Twitter and uh, we really like we appreciate the responses we're getting from everyone on our on our Twitterverse and Facebook. We're actually genuinely building like a nice little community on on Twitter especially, which is weird because we have a we have like a weirdly large number of likes on Facebook but like never get any form of engagement. Like yeah. don't know what's up with that, but we have a really nice little community over on Twitter and I very much enjoy it. So if you have a Twitter account and you'd like to join us, you can find us at, at the BSC podcast on Twitter. Twitter. And f- I was trying to think of a smart way to say Facebook, but there isn't. Foosbook. <laughs> Foosbook. <laughs> Uh, so Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And Instagram. <laughs> anyway, that went to a weird place. Yeah. We're on those things is all you need to know. Yeah. We're all on all of the socials. Um, what are we drinking today? I Okay. So as you may know, as I said, if you follow us on Twitter, each week we started doing this last week. Each week we decided that drinking wine was getting a little repetitive. Plus, mm. for us, it's like coming out of winter and moving into summer and neither of us like white wine. And I don't know, red wine's just not that fun to drink when it's like 36 degrees outside. Oh, yeah. So we started drinking cocktails and we were doing polls every Wednesday. We would pick two cocktails with two different liquors and we would poll the folks over at Twitter and you would pick what we drink. Last week, you picked the Paloma and I was happy with that choice. This week, we had two choices and I was not happy with <laughs> the democratic <laughs> choice of Twitter. Yeah. So instead, we're 
going the socialist route and we're drinking both. Yeah. So Tama is drinking a Lynchburg lemonade. Is that what it's called? I believe so. It's so to break it down. It is break it down for us, cocktail master. It is whiskey, and I used um, Jameson whiskey, nice Irish, triple distilled. Uh, it is also made with lemon, lime, equal parts. I, the way I made it, the then you put in some triple sec, about thirty milliliters, shake, add some ice, and then I finish up the soda. Now traditionally, it's supposed to be whiskey, triple sec, lemon juice. And then lemon lime soda. Oh, but that's a bit sugary. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't really want to make like a sugary drink. I like what you made. Yeah. I think it's not. It's like a little sweet, but not like um, cloyingly no. sweet. And I think purists will kind of have a go at me for doing it that way. But I mean, it's when you don't yeah. want a real As sugary drink. As we've established drink. this week, someone will always find something to complain about. Yeah. And if anyone wants to complain about that, last time I made the Paloma, I also didn't make that the right way either. So. We do what we want. Fuck it. And I'm drinking a Tom Collins, which I had actually, don't hate me, never tried before until today. It was just like one of those things. Like, you know when you go out to a bar and you're presented with a cocktail list and you're going to spend like maybe almost $20 on a cocktail, you don't want to have something that's like, I could easily make that at home. You want to have something where you're like, this has six different types of liquor and like fairy floss on top. Yeah. That's what you want when you're paying someone yeah. else. <laughs> So now that we've gotten into making cocktails at home, thank you, quarantine, I decided to try a Tom Collins, which is a gin-based drink, and it's delicious. It is quite good. Uh, you also were a fan of the Lynchburg lemonade. Yes, I do like the one you've got as well. Yeah. But I'm a gin gal through and through. It was like the first liquor that I had when I turned 18 because yeah, that's, that's a bit um, yeah, that's a big my gin dad loves too. gin and he's always loved gin which is why I love gin because I guess you kind of that's you, the, first thing, the first thing you drink is like what your parents drink yeah. so my mom doesn't drink and my dad loves gin or beer both beer. of which I love mm-hmm. and red wine which I also love and he doesn't like white so basically I'm my father in female form. And that's why I'm dating you. Yeah, my dad's pretty cool. Yeah. Shout out to Steve. I don't think my dad listens to this no. podcast, but if you do, Steve-o, we love you. You're you, a good guy. You weirdo. You made a sweet daughter. Aw, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, do we have any housekeeping for this week? I don't think we do. I don't think so, Buy no. our merch, please. Yeah. Um, send us oh, money. No, we do. How could I forget the most exciting housekeeping ever? Motherfuckers, we sold out. Oh, That's yeah, right. Yeah. This episode has a sponsor. Yeah. So I probably should, we probably should have mentioned earlier um, this episode of the Best Serve Cold podcast is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn. Bitches. So we'll fill you in on Podcorn a little bit later on in the show, but. We're both very excited. We've only been doing this for a couple of months now and we've had kind of like growth that I don't think either of us kind of expected and by no way are we going to be like retiring and living off the podcast anytime soon. But it's exciting to sort of have a sponsor and have someone who feels that something you've created is worth investing any sort of monetary value. So. 
Thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring yeah. this episode. Just, just you motherfuckers wait until we start talking about Manscaped and Quip and shit. Like, then you'll you know, know we fucking made <laughs> then it. Then you know we've made it. Yeah, and we will be soaking up every single second of it. Yeah, I definitely feel like we would be people if we ever got famous. We would definitely be, we'd go through a period of being in intolerably obnoxious like no one would want to be around us and then i feel like we'd get over it and go back to being normal but i feel like there'd definitely be like a couple of months where like all our friends will be like yo (laughs) we don't want to be friends with you anymore there's um there's a tom segura joke where he talks about purchasing a plane ticket and when they bump him up to first class he immediately becomes like the most arrogant piece of shit and that's gonna be us i feel like for a second i'm gonna be like i don't want to fucking have maybe for like the first time i feel like you want to like Live your moment the first time you get to experience something yeah. like that. So, well, to get to a humble point in your life, you need to go through a not so humble point in your life. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think that's all the housekeeping. Pretty much. So it's your turn first this week and you are doing... A big boy. A big... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, He's gross. a big boy. Yeah. That can, <laughs> that's going to be the name of the title. So there is one more housekeeping thing. We've decided that, I mean, as you can probably tell, our best of cold brand is not like, we're not a serious true crime podcast. Like there are many podcasts that go down the serious journalistic route and do it incredibly well. We are not serious yeah. people, <laughs> no. so our brand is not serious. And we felt that the episode titles that we currently have were a bit too kind of like clinical. So we are shaking up the episode titles and maybe that can be the title, the one with the big boy. <laughs> <laughs> so did we did we decide on that? Because I did see on the polls in Twitter yeah, that it was Yeah, but wasn't I don't really very... care what the polls say because <laughs> I like the idea and okay. I feel like it's much more in brand on brand with who we are as human beings. Okay. So, you know. I guess we'll... We do what we want. See how it goes. Well, anyway, to jump right into it, this week I am covering famous Australian serial killer, probably the most famous serial killer in Australia, Ivan Milat, uh, also known as the Backpack Killer. So, mm, everyone mm, mm. in Australia, pretty much around the world, knows about... I actually often wonder that when you have Australian ones. I wonder if they are well-known. Because, like, everyone knows who Ted Bundy is. Every single person on the face of the planet knows who Ted Bundy is. Of course. You kind of wonder if people do know, like, overseas who Ivan Milat is. I believe so, because Ivan Milat inspired the Wolf Creek story. But that is also an Australian-made movie. A very big Australian-made movie. True. Uh, we so should watch that. Maybe, maybe uh, we'll make a poll. Like, uh, if you've if you've heard of Ivan Milat, do you know who Ivan Milat is? Yeah, we'll put a poll up on Twitter. Anyway, Ivan Milat was a serial killer, and he was most he was active between the years of 1989 to 1992. At least that was the murders that he actually got charged for. So just to briefly go over, I want to start a new thing um, before I begin going into the serial killer. I want to name off the victims just to give them, you know, oh, their, I like that. Yeah. Know, their, their okay. identities. So the first victim was James Gibson, who was a 19-year-old. Deborah Everest, 19 as well. Simone Schmiedel, 21. Gabor Negebar, uh Sorry if I mispronounced that. I think it's Nujabar, 
21. Anya Habshield, Shield, sorry, 20. Caroline Clark, 21. And Joanne Walters, 22. Okay, now to get into big old Ivan Milat himself. So Ivan Milat was born two days before Christmas in 1944. He was the fourth son of Stephen, a 44-year-old Croatian immigrant, and his young Australian wife, Margaret, who was barely half her husband's age. The family was to grow 14 children eventually, with Ivan roughly in the middle of those 14. Ivan's father... Wait, that took me a moment to process that. Did oh, you yeah. say 14? 14 children. 14 children, all yeah. by the same woman? Yes. That is a, oh, that hurts my vagina to think about. Yeah. 14? Yeah, it's like fucking colonial times all of a sudden. That's like a, like, that's like a Von Trapp situation. It is. Did they, see, if he hadn't been a murderer, they could have made a great band. They could have. They could have had a a 14 person band. Fucking hell. The next Beatles. Yeah, the next Jackson 5. Jackson 14. The Malat 14. <laughs> 14. That's the episode title right there. The... Oh, dear. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Okay. We have fun. We do. Ivan's father, who served with the British Army in World War One, oddly enough, worked long hours as a wharf laborer and sometimes put in seven days a week. The family was normally raised uh, as Catholics, but Mr. Malat had little time for education or authority apart from his own. A quote from one of Ivan's brothers, Wally, Dad was strict but fair. If you came home and you'd been in any sort of trouble, he'd just whack you to the ground. Okay. He was strict and ruled with an iron fist. When Ivan was about age four, his father decided to become a market gardener. The whole family was pressed into working, which included watering tomatoes up to about two o'clock in the morning, but even so, they only made a meager living. It wasn't tough raising all the kids because we worked hard, which is a quote by Margaret, the 75-year-old mother of the family. She continues to say, we never had trouble with Ivan, none of them really. The Malat family lived in a three-bedroom house near working-class Liverpool on the outskirts of Sydney. The children slept in triple-tiered bunks, and another son, Alex, remembers that having guns in the house was like having spare pairs of boots, and all 14 children eventually learnt how to shoot. Like most boys Ivan's age, he went to school at the local Patrician Brothers High School, where he was considered a bright and good bright kid and good at maths and arts. His brother Alex recalls that he was a bit smarter in the head than most of us. But soon, and here's my little kind of not six degrees of separation because it wasn't anywhere near the timeline, but Ivan started regularly skipping classes. He moved and spent his early teenage years at Boys Town, which is an institution for typically overburdened families and their wayward sons. Now, Boys Town is an institution right literally on the same block, like the same square of my school. So picture my school building. It's literally right next to it, almost a part of it. 
That's so weird. Fucking crazy. Well, actually, it makes sense because it was a Catholic. You went to a Catholic I did. school, didn't you? Catholic high school. And you said that they were raised Catholic. I believe Boys Town was, yeah, and he was raised Catholic. I yeah, believe so Boys Town was a Catholic sense. institution as well. But it was literally, so sometimes when I was in high school, kids from Boys Town would come into our grades, you know, our whatever year they were a part of. Yeah. If hmm. they successfully were institutionalized. Fucking bizarre. Anyway, uh, Ivan's mother also was quoted as saying, the brothers there said that there was never any trouble with him. He was an altar boy. The family was large and needed money, so like his brother at age 15, Ivan left school and went to work on various building sites. All the boys went on to live on live on heavy manual work. Guns and knives were a part of the family's pastimes. Ivan inherited his father's obsessive cleanliness and love of order, but by the time that he was 17, Ivan was in trouble with the law for breaking into a house and stealing. Naughty, naughty Ivan. Naughty. In 1962, he was given six months in a juvenile institution for breaking in and entering. Over the rest of the 1960s, four more jail terms would follow for breaking, entering, stealing, and car theft. His mother blames those years on Ivan falling in with the wrong crowd. However, the police, who were a regular side of the Malat household, remember it differently. They said the brothers would never give each other up and were always covering for each other. The sheer number of sons also led to confusion. Fucking obviously. Which one is it? Yeah. Is it Ivan? Is I don't it, know. There's 10 of them. I'm... Is it Ivan? Is it Niven? Is, is it, it William? Is it, is it Wally? Gavin? Is it Jim Bob? Why did you name them all with the last name starting with I-N? <laughs> Gavin, Ivan, Nevin, Billy, and... I don't know. I can't think. Good job. That was very good. Thank you. In I, nine, I majored in drama. Thank you. Okay. In 1969, the family moved to the better-off Sydney suburb of Guildford. I don't know if that's really much better off, but sure. I mean, Where, it's out west, isn't it? Guildford? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Where Margaret still lives... Uh, around about the time that all the articles I read were um, dated. It was there that Ivan's youngest sister, Margaret, was killed when a car driven by brother Wally was in a head-on accident near the family home. Ivan was one of the first on the scene and reportedly took it tough. Within a month of his sister's death in 1971, he was charged with raping one of two women he had picked up hitchhiking near Liverpool. It was near this point where 20 years later, the backpacker victims would start to vanish. There was a committal hearing, but Malat, who also faced two armed robbery charges, including one at the bank, jumped bail and fled to New Zealand where he stayed until 1974. Ponies are return he was again arrested he was acquitted of the robbery charges and in a one-day trial beat the rape charge after one of the victims changed their story oh that's never a good sign yeah i mean it's there was actually a a thing that popped up the other day about the statistics of rape charges Mm. and it was literally i think 0.01 Oh, it was something like that. Like it was either like zero point one or one percent. And they of wonder all charges are false. Like they're falsely accused yeah. there. But yeah, attackers. Just, yeah. Anyway, go on. That's a that's a story for another day. And you never know if it could have been like he had a Ford. Oh, he had a Holden. 
It's something like that. And they're like, oh, well, I don't fucking know anymore. You know, and it's also the 70s, so whatever. There was evidence that Malat, then age 26, had tied up both women and threatened them with a knife. But incredibly, the police task force investigating the backpack of murders never learned about the chilling similarities of the crimes until a later date. Years later, Malat confided to a friend that he was in fact guilty of pulling a bank job, but a brother who was also involved took the rap. By 1975, Malat was apparently respectable. He still lived with his parents, didn't smoke or drink, and was a, quote, workaholic interstate truck driver. Ivan now met his future wife, Karen, then 17, and pregnant to his cousin, Mark. What the fuck? (laughs) What? Yeah, this is something. Ivan's like, look... Mark She's a hot piece of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark said we <laughs> might is, be good together. He's got nothing but good words about you. That's so weird. Yeah, but I mean, fourteen children. Yeah, but that's like, like it's your cousin. That would be like if we, like, my cousin was here on Saturday. That would be like if I started dating her husband. Yeah, that'd be very she was, weird. Like, it's so strange. Soon, the couple were living together in a caravan in a garden and saving for a house deposit. Ivan treated Karen's son, Jason, as if he was his own and married Karen in the mid-1980s. Aww. It's also nice. I just point out, that's another name that ends with N. Yeah. <laughs> also just not a great name. Ivan. <laughs> Sorry to all the Karens Gavin, out there. Gavin. Jason. Yeah. The family were not asked to the wedding as they were in the midst of a feud. Malat's father had died of bowel cancer in the early 1980s, and there was more tragedy when Ivan's brother David was permanently brain damaged in a motorcycle accident. By then, Ivan was working for the Department of Main Roads and was away for days at a time. The marriage under further, went under further pressure, mainly due to Ivan's frugality. It was alleged during the murder trial that it was at this time he had an affair with a woman called Maureen, the first wife of his brother, Walter. It's like weirdly incestual. (laughs) It is, isn't it? It's also weirdly hillbilly for Liverpool. I mean, I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, no. We do have some Australian listeners in here who may be from Liverpool, but... My opinion of Liverpool is not very high. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> but Liverpool's not a hillbilly area. I would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Oofed. All right, we'll leave that there. <laughs> uh, there was also a violent side to the marriage, well hidden behind the neatness of house proud Milat. In his <laughs> wife's words... You can't see the violence because the curtains yeah. are too straight. According to his wife, he was beginning to become a, quote, gun gun crazy and often took to beating her. On St. Valentine's Day in 1987, while Ivan was away at work, Karen packed up the house with the help of her mother and fled taking all the furniture with her. He didn't see her again for several years until Karen, then on a witness protection scheme, gave evidence against him at his committal hearing. Oh, wow. So, she, yeah. Yeah. Shit. In 1989, Malat quit his regular job. He took to working under an alias to avoid tax and st- stop Karen claiming any of his income. The divorce went through and by the end of the year, 
the two young hitchhikers, Jabra Everest and James Gibson, had gone missing. And this is where we get into the All right, you got me hooked. Reel me famous in. Famous backpacker murders. Two orienteers, which if you don't know what orienteering is, it's the competitive sport of land navigation. It's actually really fun. It sounds fucking cool. It's really fun. I think we did it once in like when I went to like one of those summer camp things and they basically let you loose in the middle of nowhere and they're like, here's a compass, good luck. Yeah. It's really fun. I would love to do it sometime. Hopefully never to this result. No. Two orienteers noticed a strong smell in the forest and thought it must have been a dead animal. But as they drew closer to the boulder in the isolated gully, where what had first appeared to be a kangaroo leg turned out to be a human elbow. Jesus. And the fur they thought they saw sticking out from the leaves was, in fact, the hair on the back of a human head. Their maps marked the spot as Executioner's Drop. It was 19th of September, the 19th of September, sorry, 1992. And the mystery of the Australian missing backpackers was beginning to emerge in the Belango, Belanglo sorry, State Forest, just about 150 kilometers southwest of Sydney, Australia's largest city. Bum, bum, bum. The next day, New South Wales Police Constable Suzanne Roberts found a second body pushed under a log just 30 meters from the first corpse. The bodies were soon identified as the remains of missing British hitchhikers Joanne Walters, age 22, and her friend, 21-year-old Caroline Clark. The two girls had been both bound, stabbed, and shot, suffering multiple wounds. There was also evidence of sexual assault, and the killer, or killers, had chain-smoked through the ordeal and taken their time. It was even feared that because their bodies were found lying in the same north-south direction with their heads to the south, there could be some ritualistic element to the killings. Both women were the last known victims of the man who'd become known across the world as the backpack killer. Their remains were the first confirmation of the police's worst fears that a serial killer was running rampant in Sydney. The eerie forest was to give up the skeletal and mutilated remains of five more young people and spark Australia's largest ever murder inquiry before their brazen killing would be tracked down. It was a tragic story of Joanne and Caroline and their parents' brave yet vain attempts to find them alive, which came to represent for many of the true horrors of the case. The girls' names first came to public attention when police took the highly unusual steps of interrupting uh, the broadcast of an English Australia rugby match in June 1992 to appeal to help in locating them. Officers in the Missing Persons Bureau wanted the largest possible TV audience that they could find, hoping that the girls or someone who knew them might have been watching the match. They also set up a toll-free hotline in a bid to try and get new information, but there were no firm leads. Welsh-born nanny Joanne and Covent-educated Caroline from Northumberland had met in Australia traveling on a carefree working holiday visa like thousands of other young young backpackers at the time. Many would thumb their ways across the continent as all the guidebooks said Australia Australia was one of the friendliest and safest countries in all the world for hitchhiking. Joanne and Caroline had both traveled to the country before sharing a rented flat in Sydney's King's Cross district. Then they decided to hitch south to pick fruit. On Easter, Saturday 18th of April, 
Both were last seen headed towards King's Cross Station, carrying sleeping bags and a tent. Two weeks later, Ray and Gil Walters began to get worried as they had not heard anything from their daughter, who was usually calling home once a week. On the 26th of May, when Joanne's visa expired, they became even more alarmed and reported her disappearance to the police in Wales, who informed their counterparts in Australia. Ian Clark, a Bank of England regional director, and his wife Jacqueline were less concerned until Caroline failed to make any contact for her father's 58th birthday. Both families traveled to Australia to search for their daughters and refused to accept suggestions that they could have met with foul play. They preferred to think that they might be staying with the Aborigines on a remote desert station or even stranded somewhere in the vast outback. In August, spurred on by the publicity the families had generated, the police began to make a connection between the series of missing person reports of foreign tourists in New South Wales and Queensland. By the time Joanne and Caroline's badly decomposed bodies were found, five other backpackers were known to have vanished while hitchhiking on the busy Hume Highway that links Sydney and Melbourne. On the 5th of October, 1993, and just a quick side note, this guy's name is Bruce Pryor. Bruce Pryor? Sort of like our friend Bryce Pryor. Just a funny little there. Bruce Pryor parked his Jeep deep in the forest and started looking for firewood. He soon stumbled upon a human thigh bone and an upturned skull. There were other human bones at the foot of a gum tree just a few kilometers away from where the British girl's bodies had been found. Police soon found the remains of 19-year-old Deborah Phyllis Everest, who had been seen on the 30th of December 1989 with her boyfriend, James Gibson at a Sydney backpackers hostel. The couple were told had told friends that they planned to go to hitchhike down south on the Hume Highway to Albury for a cons- conservation rally. Pathologists were unable to determine the exact cause of Deborah's death because of the time that her body had been found and how long it had been sitting outside. But there was enough evidence that she'd been hit in the head with a sharp object as well as stabbed in the head and body. Her black bra and her pants had been removed and cut with a knife. She had been gagged and tied with her own tights. James's body was lying in the fetal position about 50 meters from his girlfriend. Like all other remains, it was almost completely covered with sticks and branches to accelerate the decomposition. He had suffered multiple stab wounds to the lungs, heart and liver and a violent cutting blow to the spine which would have paralyzed him. Jesus. The most cursory examination of the four bodies showed the killings had been especially violent. Like all the remains recovered from the forest, none showed any signs of defensive wounds. Police now had no doubt they were hunting a serial killer, and on the 12th of October 1993, the Special Task Force Air was established under the command of Superintendent Clive Small. 20 detectives were assigned to the team along with crime scene specialists and forensic experts. Within three days, specifically trained sniffer dogs were brought in from Queensland since Superintendent Small feared the worst. An extra 60 police were seconded to bring a meticulous and methodical search to the five square kilometer strip uh, where the four bodies were first discovered. He was quoted as saying, the net is really just Australia. We have something like 17 million people. We start from there and then we work our way in. 
Then on the 1st of November, the skeletal remains of missing 20-year-old German hitchhiker Simone Schmidl were found another five kilometers to the east. Her body showed signs of suffering multiple stab wounds. Simone was last seen on the 20th of January 1991 when, against the evidence of her friends in Sydney, she decided to hitchhike down to Melbourne for a long-planned reunion with her mother. Uh, just to reiterate, I kind of said that a bit weird. When against her, the advice of her friends in Sydney. Yeah, so, so they said don't yeah, hitchhike. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't screwing that up. I think you said evidence, but I think yeah, I knew it. Against yeah. the, yeah. Police immediately increased their numbers to 80 and widened the search area to cover more than 20 kilometers of fire trails. It was now apparent that it would only be a matter of time before they found another body and the other missing young couple, German Anya Habschied and 20-year-old Gabor Nujborough, age 21. It was a... There was a lot of similarities between the other victims. They too were last seen at King's Cross Hostel planning to head out to town and hitched to Adelaide on Boxing Day 1991. Detectives already had copies of dental records when their bodies were found on either side of the fire trail of 4th of November, but just one kilometre from Simone's. Again, there was a similar pattern of tying, stabbing, and excessive force. Gabor's body was found with a gag wedged between his teeth. He was still fully clothed and had been shot six times in the head. There was also evidence of strangulation. Anya had been decapitated with a sword or machete while she was still alive and her head has never been found. Oh my god. Forensic pathologist Dr. Peter Bradshurst said the blow was consistent with her kneeling with her head bowed. He was quoted as saying, what immediately comes to mind is the style of ceremonial execution. Yeah. Just beyond fucked up. I mean, in saying that, if you had to choose between being stabbed and being beheaded, I know which one I would pick. Yeah, of course, but it's just so... It's awful. Dehumanising. Yeah, it's very um, impersonal and dehumanising. Dr. Brad Hurst, who performed the autopsies on all seven of the victims, later said in court that it seemed to him it was more likely that the killer had not acted alone. Just one day before the last bodies were discovered, the name Robert Ivan Marco Malat first came to the attention of the police task force. There was little evidence, but a workmate had voiced suspicions about Malat's obsession with guns. The tip-off joined that one of millions of other, other leads provided by the Australian public, horrified that their hospitable nation could witness such an outrage and, desperate, uh, and de- were desperate to help catch the killer. <clears throat> the Belanglo State Forest is barely a two-hour drive from the heart of Sydney. It is announced by a small sign and a turn-off alongside the Australia's busy road, busiest road, the Hume Highway. Raw police recruits, state emergency workers and others were drafted into comb wide areas of the forest, often on hands and knees looking for anything possible that could provide a clue. They were supported by nine analysts from the state intelligence group who cross-checked every single bit of information and every single possible lead. The nation was horrified as police revealed the brutal nature of the murders. There was evidence that the killer or killers had become increasingly confident with every single murder they had and spent longer at each successive crime scene. 
The commander of the task force, Air Clive Small, who was by this point chief superintendent, revealed the first three victims had been killed comparatively swiftly. But by the time Gabor was shot and his girlfriend, Anya, beheaded, the killer had begun playing with his own perverted games. A quote from him follows as, The victims had been bound and at some stage had been unbound and moved several hundred meters. Further, there were quite a number of spent shells, I believe around 100, which suggests that there was a good deal of time firing weapons. So it appears that the killer had set up beer bottles on a tree stump to show off his marksmanship to the victims before killing them. Jesus. It also seems that Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters had been made to undress and then dress again in a hurry. Caroline was then shot repetitively in the head through her maroon sweatshirt. Joanne was stabbed 20 times through her top, which was later to become a significant exhibit in the Ivan Malat's murder trial. At this stage, all the police knew for certain was that the killer probably drove a four-wheel drive vehicle to assess the to access the remote bush tracks and had some knowledge of the forest. Keep in mind, he does. Yeah. He had a job where it was literally his job to figure out the roads. Yeah. So meanwhile, ballistics experts found that the same gun was used to kill Gabor and Caroline a US-made Ruger 10-22 rifle, which was extremely rare to find in Australia. Mm. Because the travellers died in the same clothing they had worn in their, their trips down the Hume Highway, it seemed they were probably killed the same day they went missing. This suggests the killer was living in or around the southwestern region of Sydney. There were plenty of theories, but a few hard but few hard facts. Psychologists helped drive, draft a possible profile of the killer. One was quoted as saying, it is fair to say that almost without exception, people involved in this type of crime from unskilled to semi-skilled occupations. I'm not trying to put a class thing on it, but I think they are facts that they are the facts of the matter. On November the 5th, 1993, the New South Wales government offered a reward of 500,000 Australian dollars for information leading to the killer's conviction, the largest bounty ever offered in the country. A free pardon was also offered to any accomplice not involved in the murders who would give up the killer. Information lines were set up within the first 24 hours and 5,100 calls were logged. Eventually, more than 100 tip-offs were received, of which police followed up 10,000. Wow. Investigators used a computer system called the NetMap to chart the connections between the fragments of information about names, addresses, gun ownership, vehicles, and times. The clues to catch the killer were there, but it was just a matter of finding them. They had to be matched together. Even satellite photos were used to see how wet conditions had been the days the backpackers went missing. Now, I think I'm going to wrap it up right about there. Leave it on a little cliffhanger because... We're doing a part two. Yeah, there is so much information here to cover that I wanted to give, you know, a a context to the murders and the victims themselves um, and his backstory. Yeah. The next time I'll be getting into how... What I like to think of Australia's own... um, uh, the come on, the, you can do it. The behavioral science, 
John Douglas. John Douglas. There we yeah, go. Australia's How could you forget? I don't. I, it was a mind blank. How could you forget our I'm best friend ever. Johnny D? You're literally reading his book like every oh, night. It was a mind blank. You, you know when you just like you can't think of the thing. Was your mind hunted? It was. It was hunted by <laughs> good old Dougie boy. Anyway, um, there's a profile given by what I like to call Australia's own John Douglas. We go into how he was caught, including a witness that he that Ivan Milat tried to rob. Oh, okay. Someone who like kind of paid it paid it no mind, but then later saw the news and then would Yeah. Um, you know, eventually like that guy. call back to Australia. But um I think I'll leave it there. If you would like to listen more about that and, and to hear the rest of the story, next week's episode will finalize all that. Very nice. Very well done. Thank you. It's a lot to kind of pack in. That was a, uh, that was a, uh, I don't, I don't know the word. It was good. See, see. <laughs> no, but I'm trying to think of like a descriptive word. I was going to say suave, but then I was like, that's not really the word I was looking for. Thorough. I don't know. It was, it Smooth. was done with style. Oh, thank you. I don't know. There was something about it. Did you do something different this week with your notes? No. It felt a bit more scripted, but like in a good way, if okay. that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess I just kind of read it out less dot pointy. Mm, I liked it. Good yeah. job. It also Very well done. I also took a lot of it, um, not the notes word for word, but I took the information that I researched from Murderpedia. I love Murderpedia. So um, if things sound a bit um, more scripted, not scripted, more narrative driven is because I had, I've kind of had, admittedly, I love Murderpedia, but some of the information is so fucking jambled. Like I had to, it was like, I was reading it and it'd be like the, the, all the killings in one bit. And then a little bit about how they caught him. And then the first victims and then his backstory and then the second victims. And then the, and I was like, where the fuck am I? Well, it's because it's a collection of articles. No, but just like, all the articles yeah. were the same. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make it easy, does it? So I had to kind of, you know, do it in that way, but I, f- I feel like it was kind of done. Anyway, way. it was uh it was it was very well done. Well Thank done. You. Well done. Yeah. It's very uh, well very it good. was good. It Thank was you. it was good. Anyway, I think we're gonna take a very short ad break mm-hmm. and we'll be back. We will return after these short messages. Hey Tama, did you ever wonder when we started this show if we were ever going to be able to monetize it? Yeah, I did actually. It seems kind of uh, daunting at the start to reach out to other brands and pitch our show without ever really knowing if we were ever going to get a sponsorship. And I thought exactly the same, which is why I was really happy when we found Podcorn. So Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. It's basically like a dating site for, for podcast sponsorships. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any of your rights to your podcast and PodCon is here to support you as a creator at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for your brands. 
And protection of your creative rights, especially on the internet, is something that all creatives have been worried about since, you know, at some stage or another. The Marketplace mission is here to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when we monetize. Because we work on a lot of different creative platforms, and I think at some stage or another, you have either had work stolen or been unfairly compensated for the work. So PodCon is an amazing platform to help end that. Click the link in our show notes to sign up to PodCon and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Thank you, PodCon. Thank you, PodCon. So today, I'm going to be doing one of the first cases that kind of really got me into true crime I first heard this case on an episode of one of my favorite podcasts, My Favorite Murder, and I remember hearing it and just thinking, like, what the fuck? Like, there's no other there's no other way to describe this case. So I'm going to be talking specifically about a, a woman named Mary Vincent. So this is a case that was sort of first came to, I guess, infamy in a television series, an American television series called I Survived. I don't know if you remember that show. It wasn't really like prime time for us. It was one of those weird shows that they put on the television at like off hours, like 1130. Was it American? Yeah, it's an American show. It's basically, you know, does what it says on the box. It's about people who survived. And they do like... um. They basically interview the people and tell their stories and they have people like who got caught in snowstorms and stuff like that. And then they Mm -hmm. have people who went through incredibly horrific things like Mary. And we normally talk a lot more about the actual killers. And I specifically wanted to talk about this case because obviously it's centered around Mary's story a lot more. And because she's just such a badass, like this woman... I hope that if I'm ever in a situation where I need to just like grit my fucking teeth and push through, I pray that I have as much strength as this woman does because I, you know this story. Oh no. You know this story. I know this one. Tama tried to listen to it once and he was dry retching. Yeah. Uh, I will, full disclosure, I know everything we talk about is awful. This story in particular is it's so awful rough. Uh, but i will give a like a little warning before we get into the really horrible stuff because it's just it's it's not pretty it's not pretty at all oh boy so our story starts the 29th of september in 1978 mary vincent uh she lives with her parents and she decides that she wants to run away from home because her parents are going through a divorce so i guess they were fighting a lot and she decides that she wants some time to herself and so she's going to go stay with her grandfather who lives in Los Angeles for a little while. So as she's 15 and obviously she has no money, she decides to hitchhike and it's the 70s so that stuff was okay back then. So she's walking along the highway with two other people who are also trying to hitchhike when a man in a blue van comes to a stop at the side of the road. Mary describes the man as being unsuspecting and grandfatherly looking the van only has room for one person and the other travelers actually try and convince mary to not go alone and to stay with them and they'll wait i guess for like a pickup truck or something that they can all get in all three of them but i can imagine like her family lived in las vegas 
it would be hot. Yeah, totally. It would have been so hot, hot on the side of a highway with no shade. So I imagine in the back of her head, she's probably like, yeah, it would be much safer to stay with these people, but fuck it. I just want to get to LA and get off this stupid road. So she accepts a ride from this man in the blue van. This man is 51-year-old Lawrence Singleton. Lawrence was a merchant seaman. Um, There's really not a lot more available on his backstory. I think from what I can tell, he had a pretty normal childhood, normal upbringing. And at the time of the event, he's working as a merchant seaman. So Singleton offers Mary a lift and she accepts. And at the beginning, everything sort of seems okay aside from one weird thing where Mary sneezes and Singleton reaches over from the driver's side and sort of touches her neck and asks her if she's sick. And Mary said she remembers feeling really uncomfortable with him touching her, so she sort of scoots over a little bit, but she calms down again when he doesn't try anything more. He sort of does that and then goes back to being normal. So Singleton tells her that he has to make a quick stop at his house before they can get on the interstate, which will take them to Los Angeles. And Mary actually helps him carry some laundry like from his car to his house. So they go to the house, all's, all's well. And after they leave the house, Mary actually falls asleep in the passenger seat. When she wakes up, though, she notices that Singleton has taken a wrong turn and they've missed the exit that they needed to take to get onto the interstate. When she confronts him, he claims it's an honest mistake. He apologizes and does actually turn the car around and they go back to where the exit is and they get on the interstate. So they're on the interstate and they're driving along and everything's sort of fine. And Singleton claims that he needs to use the bathroom. So he pulls over on a little sort of side road and starts to drive down there a little bit away from the highway. Now it's at this point that Mary says her gut instinct sort of takes over and she's got some red flags going off in the back of her head because she's realized a it's the middle of the night b she's in the middle of nowhere and c she's completely alone with this man that she doesn't know she's been quoted as saying in her head i'm young he's old i'm healthy he's not and she's planning on making a run for it if anything happens once she gets out of the car but she looks down and sees that one of her shoes is untied she thinks that I can most definitely outrun this old fat guy, but I need my shoes tied if I'm going to do this. So she waits until Singleton gets out of the driver's side and waits until he closes the door. And then she sort of opens her door. You know how when you don't really have enough room in a car, so you kind of open mm. the door and stick your legs out the side? Yeah, a bit of extra room. So she does that and she bends down to tie up her shoelaces and that's when Singleton hits her over the back of the head using both his fists and a hammer ties her hands behind her back and throws her in the back of the van after forcing her to perform oral sex on him. Once in the van, Singleton repeatedly rapes Mary, telling her if she screams, he'll kill her. He then ties her up and gets in the front seat and goes back on the interstate, uh, sorry, continues to drive further away from the interstate, sort of down this side street towards a canyon kind of ravine thing. Eventually, he stops, cuts her hands free and orders her to drink an unknown liquid from a plastic jug, which makes her very, he basically drugs her, essentially. It makes her very woozy and confused. And Singleton repeatedly rapes her over and over until she passes out. Shortly after Mary regains consciousness, Singleton takes her from the van and orders her to lie on the edge of the road. 
Mary is quoted as saying she doesn't really remember what she says to him. She just remembers saying the words, let me go free over and over and over again. And Singleton says, you want to be free, I'll set you free, and returns to the van to find something coming back shortly after. Now, this is the part where if you are squeamish, I would advise you to just not finish this episode. I'm not even going to say skip ahead. Just don't finish Mm. the episode or maybe skip a good five minutes ahead because it's really not a good time. It's not pretty. It's not a good time from this point on. So I actually found the, not the whole episode, but a portion of the I Survived episode that covers Mary Vincent. And I'm going to quote her describing the incident because the the way just watching her face is so full of emotion when she says it and hearing it in her own words is just so harrowing and so awful. And I cannot imagine going through something like this so her direct quote from i survived was you want to be you want to be set free i'll set you free and he pulled out a hatchet from his toolbox and took my left arm and took one swing and i started to fall and he took another swing and i grabbed his arm grabbed it real tight and i couldn't figure out why i'm holding him real tight and i'm still falling and this is when Mary realizes that Singleton has cut off her left arm just below the elbow with a hatchet that he's gotten from his van. Mary says that her body didn't immediately go into into shock and she remembers feeling the pain of everything, feeling the cut, feeling her hit, herself hit the ground, feeling the warm blood oozing out of her. She says she re, she vividly felt everything. Singleton then grabs her right arm and Mary just starts going crazy. She, I guess this is the point where she kind of really realizes like, oh shit, this is, this is bad. Like this is really bad. And so obviously she's missing one arm. So she just starts kicking him as hard as she possibly can trying to get away, which means they're sort of struggling. So after five attempts, Singleton successfully cuts off Mary's right arm Mary says she remembers looking up from the ground because obviously she falls backwards and she can sort of see Singleton in the distance wildly kind of flicking and flailing his arm around and that's when she realises that she's been grabbed onto him so tight despite the fact that he's cut off her right arm, her hand is still holding onto his T-shirt. So he's flicking his his arm around trying to get her severed arm off him. Like she's still fighting. That that image is like burned into my brain. Like a just a, a fucking badass. Yeah. Mm. Like from start to finish just an absolute badass. So obviously Mary at this stage is in her body now starts to go into an intense shock and she says she's conscious, but she's just limp. Like she's just lying on the ground limp and Singleton approaches Mary and starts dragging her towards the side of the highway because she says she assumed at this stage, he thinks she's dead because she's just completely limp. So Singleton picks her up and throws her into a ravine down a 30 foot drop. 
So I've read a few different articles. One said that it was like a cliff into a ravine and then another said that he throws her off and then pushes her body into like a concrete drainage culvert. So you know how when you have highways, sometimes you'll have those massive, they're not bridges, but they're like massive concrete things with the huge stormwater drains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like one of those. So he pushes her off, throws her off the side of that. Either way, she falls 30 feet and either way it's just fucking awful. So the fall breaks four of her ribs and at this stage her body is in a complete state of shock. She would have lost so much blood at this point. He's chopped both her arms off. Like it's just so awful. So he throws her to the bottom of this ravine. Singleton shouts, you're free now, and drives away thinking that Mary is either already dead or as Dying. good as dead. Yeah. Singleton, Singleton then drives back towards San Francisco, and on his way he opens up his car door and throws Mary's severed arms off the Oakland Bay Bridge, one of which is later recovered and used as evidence in Mary's trial. But the fucking badass that Mary is, she's not dead and she's not done either. Mary says that she remembers lying at the bottom of this ravine and being so tired and she just wanted to close her eyes and go to sleep. But there was this part of her brain that she couldn't shut off that kept saying, if you go to sleep, you're going to die. Like, you need to get up. So she rolls over. She rubs the open wound of her severed arms in the dirt and then the blood from her arms mixes with the dirt and makes kind of like a mud pack which stems the bleeding. She then gets up and with two fucking seven arms and four broken ribs walks 4.8 kilometers or three miles back up the cliff to the road. Keeping in mind, it's still dark. Yeah, and it it's an incline. black. So she's using just the sounds of the cars on the distant highway to try and guide her through the dark and she has she's got no arms to keep her balance and broken ribs as well and broken ribs like she's Hard to move just broken ribs. i can't even imagine so after several hours of walking both up the cliff and along the freeway because i guess this isn't like a super busy road so there's not necessarily cars going like whizzing past every five minutes and it's at night time as well a red convertible with two men inside comes towards mary Mary desperately tries to flag them down, but they slow down and then basically chuck a U-turn and like yeet out of there as fast as they can, which you can be so quick to be like, that's so horrible, those assholes. But can you imagine at like four o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere, you come across a woman, she's completely naked, she's covered in blood with no arms. Yeah. Like... You would be terrified. Because got to remember, this: she's covered in blood, but she's not exactly pissing blood from her arms. It's hard to tell if she's... And at this it's stage, hard to look at her and go... And also at this stage, because the mud pack has start, started to wear off, she's actually holding her arms up to try and hold right. all the blood and muscle and stuff inside. Yeah, and but so, your first thought when you see that isn't, Oh, that girl's in trouble. It's, it's like, holy shit. What the fuck like, is that? what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. So, but can you imagine, like, how awful they would have felt when they this what made happened. the news? Yeah. 
Like when they realize and they're like, oh, my God, that was that girl we saw and we left her. Mm. Like that's that would ne- you would that would never, weigh heavy you'd, on you. Yeah, you would never forgive yourself for that. So if you're angry at those people, I mean, don't be. Yeah. They've, they've already, I'm sure, suffered enough of their own. Thankfully, there is a couple who drives down the same road. They were actually on a holiday and were only on that road because they'd gotten lost. Shit. And that was the only reason they were out there on that road so late at night. And they come across Mary and thankfully pick her up. They stop, they tie up her wounds, making tourniquets, put her in the car, and then they speed as I can imagine as quickly as possible to the nearest phone to call for help. Don't forget, this is the 1970s. So you have to go oh, and find yeah. a petrol station or a house or something where someone has a phone for you to call 911. Mary is rushed to hospital where she undergoes uh, life-saving surgery. Mary gives such an incredibly accurate description of Singleton that after his sketch is revealed to the public, his neighbours actually call him into the police and <laughs> Singleton is arrested. Whoa. While in custody, Singleton confesses in detail to everything he's done to Mary and only six months after her attack, at which stage she's fitted with two prosthetic arms, Singleton is tried where Mary confronts him in court and gives her testimony while he sits in court, which eventually convicts him. Fucking badass. Absolute badass. Mary recalls during the trial when she was leaving the courthouse, she had to walk past Singleton and they passed quite close together and he leant in and said to her, if it's the last thing I do, I will finish the job. Mary does win a $2.56 million civil suit against Singleton, but shortly after finds out that he is, no surprise, a complete loser who is unemployed with less than $200 in savings. And from what I could see, Mary sadly gets nothing. Jesus. Which all sounds very, you know, not exactly happy ending to the story and sadly it gets a little bit worse so we know that the judicial oh my god judicial (laughs) the justice system (laughs) is not the best no not at all so in a messed up twist because mary was so determined not to die the maximum penalty singleton can be sentenced to is 14 years in prison because it wasn't murder, it, it was, was attempted attack. murder. Uh, so that is the most amount of time a judge can possibly sentence him with. It's fucked up. It's egregious battery but, as well. But he only serves eight of those 14 years. Why? Because he's let out on good behaviour. Oh, fuck off. Yeah, good behaviour after chopping a woman's arms off. Both her arms and raping her multiple times and throwing her Oh, but he was cliff. really nice in prison. He did yeah, his time well. Yeah, he didn't shank any guards. He did a really good job. Anyway, I, I can't even deal with the justice system sometimes. However, there is a very small triumph as part of this story and then it kind of gets shitty again. So after his release, basically nobody wants him. The local communities of the towns that they try and place him in around California are basically like, yeah, no, sorry, not happening. Mm. They try and place him in various country uh, counties sorry, within California, the first of which is the Bay Area, which either the townsfolk or the media sort of get wind of the fact that he's coming. They let everyone know and angry mobs form and the Tampa chapter of the Guardian Angels who are basically sort of like, 
Love them. Buy keys, but not. They were kind of like unarmed civilian. And they originated police. in New York. I believe so. They're um, they're like this kind of vigilante, yeah. secret security kind of guys. They're really so cool. They they form, I guess, not form. They come together and they arrange protests and pickets until eventually the Bay Area agrees and Singleton is refused placement. In Rodeo, where they try and place him next, a crowd of 500 people form to protest and so that's ruled out as well. They then try and house him across the road from Concord City Hall and the same thing happens. He's eventually placed in an apartment in Contra, Contra Costa County, which is possibly the hardest name to say, where he needs to be placed in a bulletproof vest when a crowd of 400 protesters form <laughs> outside the apartment he's placed in. So much so, so all of this uh, community pressure becomes so much that Singleton is forced to live out the year of his probation in a trailer on the grounds of the jail that he served his eight years in. Whoa. So eventually they do manage to place him in relative secrecy down in Florida, which is where he was sort of like born and bred. But then, in a shitty twist, in 1997, Singleton finally does what he had tried to do with Mary. He picks up Roxanne Hayes, who was a mother of three and a sex worker, which is how Singleton managed to pick her up. He takes her back to his house and stabs her multiple times until <sighs> she dies. At Roxanne's trial, Mary travels from California down to Florida and testifies again for Roxanne's trial and Singleton is finally convicted and sentenced to death but died of cancer in 2001 before he could be executed. Good fucking riddance. It's just like I get that so many changes have been made to the system and how we, I guess, process criminals like Singleton but the fact that you look at that and you're like, that second woman would 100% be alive today. Yeah, how could you not fucking see this? coming yeah but i mean as we've we've covered many times and, and you know pre-john douglas and the behavioral science unit which then became the isu things were different in the 70s yeah. and the 60s and, and this was the early 70s as well it, things were very different counties didn't talk to each other the the laws were weird they didn't profile people if he was convicted of something they would be like ah, oh, he'll do his time and he won't do it again yeah, it was like how it works. odd to even like imagine that he would continue to do something else, which is so fucking bizarre when you yeah, think about it. Yeah, because there's a reason that these people do what they do in the first place. Exactly. You can't like something like that just can't really be like rehabilitated. I find it interesting. I wonder if he has ever had any priors. I don't know. Weren't... I really couldn't find a lot of information on his backstory. All I saw was that between being placed in Florida and murdering Roxanne, he stole a camera which he served like 60 days in jail for or something like that. Right. Um, there were two offences before murdering Roxanne of like petty theft that he was caught and tried for. Okay. Yeah, I, I just wonder because he's such an older guy, you know, like it's, it's odd for an – older man if yeah. this is his, if, if that was if, if that was his first murder like the attempted murder was yeah because it's a very big um escalation well it's just it's 
it seems somewhat calculated and prepared and premeditated, not in the sense of he was looking for her, but he was looking for someone. He was looking for someone. To pick up. Because he has the liquid, right? What I only can imagine is some sort of... I think it was um, some sort of uh, like liquid drug, but nothing I could find really specified what it was. Right. Chloroform or something. But I just... I her like her just will to live and be like, you are not winning, motherfucker. Yeah. I'm getting out of here alive. And she was quoted in saying in the I survived, like when she was at the bottom of the ravine lying there, she knew that she had to get up so she could call the police so he couldn't do it to someone else. Yeah. Which like is just that level amazing. of I, I don't even know what to call it. Just selflessness, really. But selflessness also. for worrying about him doing it to someone else, but just like the iron will that it takes to do what she did is just phenomenal. Yeah, she is. So her sto- her like what happened to her is awful to listen to, but her her story as a human being is is fascinating, really. Yeah. Yeah, she's a iron willed woman, woman. Just real real insane person badass yeah that's just like, crazy yeah just nuts without her he probably would have never been locked up at all potentially or he or yeah he could have done it to a bunch of other women and and finished the job i guess he, well he could have done it to a bunch of other women figured out a way to do it you know more intelligently and never get caught yeah which is kind of a, a theme in the 70s if they would never really were caught they would go on to just again never really be caught yeah interesting yeah, thing btk was, was only ever uh, found because the police lied to him about if he they could trace floppy disks yeah which is so crazy yeah one of the most intelligent murderers in this in the in the senses of what he uses in symbolism his letters to the police and yeah he thinks so, so do you think there was like a do you think there was a small part of him that did want to get caught maybe because it's such that. a bizarre thing to ask he's so carefully calculated in what he does and because so many of these killers so often do talk about how it's a compulsion yeah and that they can't stop. So I do actually I have actually wondered that before if maybe he he was um pressured by his wife to to like he was apparently caught, I think, masturbating, um, in a in a way that was odd. Well, he was um, I can't. There's a proper word for it, and I can't remember. Um, people who enjoy uh, masturbating whilst strangling Being strangled, yeah, themselves. But it's a it's a thing where you do it to you. Uh, there's a proper word for it. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. But yeah, there, there there was pressure from his wife to to get over what they she called a deviancy. It, it could have been because it's such a weird thing for to someone who's evading police and actually taunting police to be like, "Hey, can you guys trace floppy disks?" Yeah, and they're like, "No, we can't." Why? And he's like, "Oh, cool, cool. no worries. Go. Yeah. Here's a floppy disk." And then they fucking trace him. It's like, what did you think was going to fucking happen, dumbass? Yeah. Like. So we had a thing on our Facebook page maybe a, a week or two back, which is uh, and a fellow podcaster friend of mine had put a bunch of serial killers into FaceApp, which is the app that you can like make yourself look old. Or anyway, she took a bunch of male serial killers and ran like the female filter, 
and someone commented on the one of Dennis Rader and just called it she TK. And I was like, that is the best thing I have wow. ever heard in my entire life. Shit. Yeah, the one of Jeffrey Dahmer looked interesting as well. Weirdly attractive. Mm. Made me so uncomfortable. I yeah. was like, why are you so pretty? <laughs> like, why are you prettier than me as a girl and you're not a girl and you're a serial killer? There was weirdly as well the, um, when we covered Jeffrey Dahmer and that photo, there was a lot of people who sympathized for Jeffrey Dahmer. I think a lot of people do. A lot of people sympathized for Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Kemper. You get a lot of people. But there's also like... Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy have like weird fan cults of people that love them. It's oh yeah, it's like a creepy part of the internet. I don't want to get involved. Yeah, in. there was um, there was another killer. I can't remember his name. He was the one who killed the nurses that that um that stay that home for nighttime. I think it was night shift nurses, and he initially wanted to rob the place. And he tried to rape the first girl. She got away and then alerted all the other girls in the house. And he ended up killing, I think it was like about Isn't 11. Speck? Speck. Richard Speck. That's it. There was, he received photos from groupies. Yeah, that's also, can we just talk about how quick my knowledge of that, my encyclopedic knowledge of serial killers at times does concern me. I'm like, what would well, I not have? really, because we. What would I have space for in my brain? It's our life? job to research. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You know, we, no, but of, that's what I mean. Neither of us have done spec. So it's just like well, just I mean, general knowledge that lives in my brain. Yeah. But yeah, he anyway, received I am who I am. letters and photos. Yeah, from, it's so like, creepy. Please don't fuck? send love letters to serial killers please just don't no did we have a we six do. degrees of separation we have an amazing uh six degrees of separation story from Hell another yeah. a fellow podcaster so thank you very much for sending this in this is one that i listened to and i was like just blown away whoa so this is a story the podcast name is basic murder babes and we're going to play the story now and then we're going to talk about it and I'm going to let you know more about the lovely lady that sent this story to us. Okay. Hi there. I'm Sierra and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast Basic Murder Babes. I wanted to tell you all my six degrees of separation story. In 2007, my grandfather was murdered. His name was Fred Tucker. He had his own business, and he was living in the bottom housing of a two-family home that he owned. The upper housing was being rented to my aunt's boyfriend, Mark Roby. They weren't married, but they had two kids together, and he was basically like our family. He was my Uncle Mark. Mark also worked for my grandfather at his business. A lot of my family on that side had some demons they were living with. Many of them, including Mark, were heroin addicts and in and out of jail for offenses like theft. But we all thought Mark was trying really hard to make a better life for his family. On October 14, 2007, my cousin called 911 from a payphone across from my grandfather's house. She said that he was lying on the floor and he wasn't answering her and that she couldn't get into the house to see him. Her mother, my aunt, had broken a window in the back of the house trying to get in and calling out to my grandfather. When the police arrived, my grandfather had been stabbed seven times and he died from the blood loss. My uncle Mark was the killer. 
The official story we got was that he, high and drunk, confronted my grandfather about his paycheck being short. The confrontation became violent, and Mark stabbed my grandfather. The unofficial story, according to Mark, who still writes letters to my family from jail, is that my grandfather was supporting the family of the woman he was having an affair with and talking badly about his own adult children at work, and Mark killed him in honor of his girlfriend, my aunt. Before leaving the house, Mark showered in my grandfather's bathroom and stole his gun, supposedly to use on himself. He ran from the police but was found shortly later. He was sentenced to 15 years to life and will have his first parole hearing in 2022. The investigation of this case was aired on an episode of The First 48 called Bailout Seeing Red. The real crazy part is that, at the time, my family couldn't afford to hire a crime scene cleanup crew, so my father and I did the cleanup. We had to scrub the walls and mop the blood, and eventually the house was torn down anyway. So how many degrees of separation does cleaning up a crime scene of a family member who was killed by another family member get me wow oh my goodness and sierra to just quickly answer your question you get zero degrees of separation and if you're ever in australia please let us buy you a drink yeah you need a fucking drink that first of all my condolences to you and your family because that is a horrible a fucking terrible thing to happen like yeah, I, I can't imagine the idea of cleaning up the crime scene. Yeah, but just like also a crime scene team being like It's so interesting because I guess we we talk about true crime every week but have obviously never experienced it to that extent. No. It's just not even something that you, you think that really. someone is murdered in a house and I I guess I just always assumed that the police or forensic team would clean it up. But no, apparently that's so bizarre. It's one of those you things you never think it. about. You never think about like the fact that they would charge you to clean what your house. What a traumatic thing to make family like, go through. Oh, you're gonna charge me a thousand dollars to clean my grandfather's blood off of my floor? Uh, no. What? Yeah, that's that's um, that's a little bit messed up. What the fuck, man? But thank you so much to Sierra from Basic Murder Babes podcast. They have a great show. You can we're gonna leave as usual, we're gonna leave all the links in the show note, show notes rather, but definitely check them out because they talk about true crime and mysteries just like us. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Thank you so much for sending that in. That was um yeah, that was crazy. Very crazy. Yeah. Oof. Well, Come to that time of the week where we wrap this bad this boy up. Puppy up. Do you? What's your good thing for the week? Good thing or grateful thing? Oh, I'm either yeah. grateful, good. Either. Uh, I am grateful that I got to spend time with you and your family the other weekend, and I was making Aww. drinks all night. I'm grateful for you making me drinks all night. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a special kind of comfort in having someone make and bring you a drink at your own home yeah. rather you, than ladies. having to be out at a bar with a bunch of strangers 
that I don't know and probably don't like. Yeah, and also I don't charge you $18 a drink. Yeah, good stuff. That's that always was great. That, actually, that's my grateful thing. That was just a really nice night with family and yeah. we were in bed by 9.30. Oh, so Because great. we're old now. We're yeah. old. Yeah. I accidentally didn't go to bed until like 12.30 last night. It was the worst day oh, ever. Oh, yeah, it was sucked. Today was, like, was struggle straight. Fucking horrible, man. I don't oh. know how we did it before. Oh, oh, that's the life of an almost 30-year-old. Yeah, once you start getting like Everyone, seven, eight hours. Anyone over the age of 30 is probably listening to this like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> You're not a part of the club yet. I don't want to be a part of the club. Yeah, fuck that. Take you your guys... membership forms back. Stop sending <laughs> me sign-up sheets. I don't want it. I don't want to go to pottery classes. I actually really do want to go to pottery classes. Oh, it's so. happening. It's happening. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you start. <laughs> the <laughs> urge to pot yeah. just gets stronger as you get yeah, closer to Yeah, some people 30. get uh, the baby the baby fever. Well, I mean, no. I got the baby fever just in a different way yeah. a long time Fur ago. Baby. That's Why do you think we have three cats? Yeah. Do you know, that's so many cats. Like, It's a lot of cats when you think about so it. so much energy at yeah. 6 o'clock in the morning. It's too much. Just fucking crackhead uh, cats just every morning. just sleep in. Anyway. Yeah. You know, it's the life we chose. Weirdly enough, on the weekends, they decide to wait until like 8 o'clock. Uh, well, I mean, look, if they're going to wait, for a time to do it, I would much rather them do it on the weekends when I don't have to get up. Yeah, I guess. Like, at least when they do it on a weekday, I know I have to get up in, like, a half hour anyway. So it's not yeah. as bad. Fucking crackheads, man. They really are. Zooming around. I'm like, how do you have this much energy? Oh, no. It is so Just early. fucking sleep. Sleep. Anyway. Maybe you're the problem. Do you know how many times you just said the word fuck in, like, a 30... 30- you're the issue, Tommy. Oh, right. Yeah. Keep getting all these one-star reviews for swearing. Look, just don't fucking listen to the episode. <laughs> like, it's it's that fucking simple. Okay. You fuck. You've reached your quota enough. Like, just a, a brief rant, really. It does don't seem like a very... listen to the episode. It seems like a very silly thing it's so to fucking go petty. out of your way to leave a bad review... It also makes me mad because, like, we spend a lot of time researching, editing, yeah, uh, doing uh, the marketing and social media for this show. So it kind of feels like someone's spitting in your face when they're like, I don't even have anything to say about the actual show. I just don't like the F word. This is literally, like, becoming a part of our lives. And it's something we put so much effort into. And for, for someone to give us a one-star review when it doesn't even... P- it's pertain. not related to the it's, show. Not, it's not. It doesn't even pertain to the quality of the show. It's a thing they didn't like in the yeah. way that we spoke. Like if someone were to leave a review and say, "Oh, I I don't think it was researched enough," or yeah. "I don't like the format," or something, unprofessional, like, it was whatever. But to say like for swearing, yeah. It's like, also- how about you just grow a fucking pair? Go listen to a teddy teddy bear, Care Bear, like Teletubby. I just podcast. Like, why are you not offended by the brutal murders? Yeah. But I was on board with Ed Kemper fucking a, a headless corpse. <laughs> Sorry, the head of a headless corpse. But when you said shit, fuck, and piss, 
that's where I draw the line. I, that's despicable. Ted Bundy never swore. Yeah. He was a saint <laughs> apart from the many killings yeah, he did. Yeah, all the murders. But apart from that, you know, never. Bill Cosby never swore. Yeah. Bill Cosby never swore. So really, we're better people. We are. Because we swear. Yes. They also reckon there are actual statistics that say people who use foul language have a higher intelligence. Yeah, so we're just fucking smarter than you dumbasses. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you're giving us one-star reviews is because you're fucking offended. You can't get on our intelligence We're bigger brain people than you. I just don't think our show is for, with, with the exception of Tom, who was um Tom was the lovely our lovely guest on the first six degrees of separation segment. With the exception of Tom, I just don't think our show is for boomers and we're okay with that. Yeah. I mean this I is Tom, not I love you. You're friendly a, content. I love you. You're a good guy and guys your age and gals your age are fantastic people uh who are like you. But uh, it seems to be the Karen's and the Kevins yeah. of the world stay away. Yeah. Show it's not. In all honesty, if you're going if you're gonna give us a one star review, you're probably not even at this part of the show anyway. But if you are, just don't. <laughs> just fuck don't. off. It makes me really sad. Just, also, just literally go fuck yourself. Wow. Okay. Have a wank or finger yourself, <laughs> and then figure your shit out, Karen. <laughs> like literally, just take a step back. Have a bat. Have a have a little finger this yourself. Just, to- just 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 calm down, and just vent your shit out. And then before okay. you start one star reviewing places, okay. just go. Maybe, maybe I needed. Maybe I need a white Russian. All right, or a little shot of vodka. To be ending the show on a happy note. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Oh, quick shout out to um, Matt and Josh, who also both gave me the secret code of yes last week's episode that I left at the end to make sure they were true fans. Can I? Can I leave? This the secret quote. Sure. This week, I want the secret quote to be "Toucan penis." I expect wow. a message saying "Toucan penis." Yeah. Toucan is in the bird. Or is in two cans. You pick. <laughs> a penis in two cans. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, cool. thanks for can. joining us once again. Yep. For another episode of Best Served Cold. Give us five-star reviews. Give us if you only like one-star reviews. If you Maybe like- that can be our aim. Maybe we can aim to be the worst-reviewed podcast <laughs> on iTunes. Please yeah. only leave us one star. And That'll get us that, that good old that sponsorship, me, won't it? That would make me cry yeah. so much. Uh, no, Please in do leave series. us, subscribe, yeah. leave us a review, review because it actually genuinely does help in the Apple charts. Apple Charts is based off new subscribers and reviews. So it genuinely does help. We don't just ask because we like hearing the sounds of our own voices, which clearly we do because we do this for like two hours every week. Yeah. Uh, we are the BSC podcast on all social media. Thanks. That's all I got to say it's, for the week. Yeah. That's it. That's all there is, folks. Yeah, I got yeah, nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> Let's, BSC, uh, that stands for Big Sexy Crumb. Big Sexy Crumpet? Crumpet, yeah. I like Crumpet better. Big Sexy Crumpet. Anyway, I have to go and attempt to write a 1,600-word essay that I haven't oh, started that's due shit. tomorrow. So 
looking at the time, I'm probably not going to do that because <laughs> I really want to go to bed. Uh, 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 but thank you for joining us. I am Laura. I'm not Laura. I'm Tama J. The J stands for not Laura just Laura. drive. <laughs> just, just not. Just not Laura. Just don't leave us one star reviews. Please. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We will see you same time next week. Bye. bye. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs>